Good morning. Anybody here know Reverend William Schultz? That name ring a bell? I want to solve that today. From 1985 to 1993, Reverend Schultz was the president of the Unitarian Universalist Association. From 1994 to 2006, he was the executive director of Amnesty International. Of late, Reverend Schultz has been a faculty member at Meadville Lombard Theological School and has had the distinct pleasure, though perhaps painful obligation might be better words, of spending this summer grading some of my papers. Back in 2001, Reverend Schultz published Making the Manifesto, The Birth of Religious Humanism. It's an excellent book, and I'm saying that not only because this sermon is being recorded (laughs) or that my grade my graduation and my entire ministry depends upon you purchasing as many copies as you can safely afford, but rather I can commend it to you because it is eloquently written, deftly argued, and brilliantly laid out. So let's all take a moment and thank Reverend Schultz for his excellent work. Thank you for playing along. I want to share something of my own experience with religious humanism prior to taking Reverend Schultz's class, uh, which was this. It was almost entirely limited to those of you that have queued up at the end of my other sermons to say, good talk, Scott, but all that stuff about God and Jesus really makes people uncomfortable. Okay, that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but let's turn it around just for a second. How about you? Chances are when your non-UU friend uses the word humanist, she's not referring to the humanist manifestos. What she probably means by humanism is not a religion that was created to address the problems of a changing world, not a solution to the world's problems, not a vision for a brighter tomorrow. Now, she was probably referring to those that believe that religion itself was the enemy of tomorrow and that its eradication was perhaps the best solution to the world's problems. No religion is good religion. But in the spirit of full confession, I will admit that I have held similar views. Thirty years ago, whatever trend towards the supernatural that may have lingered after studying the history of the 20th century, that was chased right out of me by some graduate work in philosophy. Is it weird to say that I'm sad about this? Sad that my orientation to the supernatural now is mostly metaphorical, allegorical, or aesthetic? I just can't quite bring myself to a metaphysical commitment. And I think that gap is a little boring. I like to think it would be more interesting if there was real magic, not just metaphorical magic. This kind of daydreaming used to make my philosophy professors nervous. And somewhere along the way, I do seem to have outgrown their allergy to God talk, so that's good. And yes, maybe that's because I'm in seminary. Maybe all of that exposure 
has helped me build up an immunity or a tolerance or something. But the fact is, I believe that God talk really is a sort of cultural shorthand and a terrifically important one to master. I can, in my head, do the code switching necessary to find value in amazing Lutheran preachers like Nadia Boltz Weber, or even evangelicals like Sky Jathani, Rob Bell, and Tony Campolo. To me, it is completely obvious that there is a lot of wisdom in those other religious traditions. And as someone genuinely gripped by questions of ultimacy and obsessed with the meaning of life specifically, I'm not about to abandon the richest set of cultural memes, metaphors, and meaning-making tools that history and tradition have to offer. But because of my metaphysical problem, I tend to self-identify as atheist or agnostic because it's simpler than explaining the mechanisms of linguistic substitution in a way that doesn't seem condescending. And atheism at least gets us into the right philosophical zip code, if it's, even if it's not quite accurate. Not unexpectedly, for someone who's interested in a career where workers are occasionally seen as the living embodiment of a compassionate deity, my problem is uncomfortable. And claiming that God is a function of the human condition doesn't really make that better. But it just might make me a humanist. Reverend Schultz's summer class held two keys for me. The first was from making the manifesto where he said, I had decided to become a Unitarian Universalist minister. There was just one problem with my newly chosen profession. I didn't believe in God. I was interested in religious questions, but not in the trappings of their answers. Could I possibly make it in ministry? Now, if Reverend Schultz, the past president of the UUA, can say that out loud... I think I can at least own some of my own uncertainty. The second revelation came from a writer some of you are perhaps a bit more familiar with, Kurt Vonnegut. He wrote, if God were alive today, he'd be an atheist. <clears throat> now, Vonnegut is nothing if not provocative, and that line came from his 2004 bestseller, A Man Without a Country, the last of his 32 published books. 32. It's a lot, Bob. Not 42, just 32. The man had a lot to say, uh, clearly, and uh, you, I'm sure all of you have heard of him, right? Uh, pretty sure Slaughterhouse-Five was, would have been on at least one of your reading lists somewhere back in the distant past. Fun fact, did you know that Slaughterhouse-Five was also on the list of most banned books in American history. Anybody know that? It hit number 28. So, if that book ever comes up in conversation, you now have a perfectly legitimate excuse for never having read it. You're welcome. In class, I was assigned to write a paper about a famous humanist. We were given a list, and not knowing any better, I picked the only name on that list that was familiar, Kurt Vonnegut. Did you know that he was a Unitarian Universalist? Anybody? He, I didn't know that. Uh, he wrote, 
As for religion, my family were rational people. And they decided the priest didn't know what the hell he was talking about. What really shook them was Darwin. That sounded exactly right to them. And it put the Bible out of business. To them, this country did have religious documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. They had no expectation of an afterlife. They were free thinkers. The Germans were so hated after the First World War, never mind the Second World War, that the free thinkers simply disappeared. They became Unitarians. Years later, he added the following declaration. I am a humanist, a freethinker, as my parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. So, uh, and so, not a Christian. By being a humanist, I am honoring my mother and father, which the Bible tells us is a good thing to do. But I say that with my American ancestors, if what Jesus said was good, and so much of it was absolutely beautiful, what does it matter if he was God or not? If Christ hadn't delivered the Sermon on the Mount with its message of mercy and pity, I wouldn't want to be a human being. I would just as soon be a rattlesnake. This may explain why Vonnegut referred to himself regularly as a Christ-loving atheist. But given the vast majority of his writings, commencement speeches, and public appearances, Vonnegut was perhaps best known as a proponent of religious humanism. In 1992, Vonnegut was named Honorary President of the American Humanist Association, where he succeeded his great friend, quote, the late great science fiction writer Isaac Asimov in that entirely functionless capacity. <laughs> that same year, Vonnegut was also named Humanist of the Year. In his acceptance speech, he honored his friend Asimov, who was a vocal atheist, as follows. I myself at one time tried to become a biochemist, as did our darling, terribly missed brother, Isaac Asimov. He actually became one. I didn't have a chance. He was smarter than me. We both knew that, incidentally. He is in heaven now. Vonnegut said, this is the funniest thing I could have said to an audience of humanists. I rolled them in the aisles. It was several minutes before order could be restored. And if I should ever die, God forbid, I hope you will say, Kurt is up in heaven now. That's my favorite joke. The title of that speech, which is also the name of this sermon, was Why My Dog is Not a Humanist. In it, Vonnegut explained that, his, that this award was not the first time he'd been accused of being a humanist. The first time was in 1972, and the, the accusation stuck in my craw. And in the process of trying to cough it up so I could look at it, it occurred to me that a humanist, perhaps, was somebody who was crazy about human beings, who, like Will Rogers, had never met one he didn't like. That certainly did not describe me. It did describe my dog, however. 
Upon further reflection and a quick look into the Encyclopedia Britannica, Vonnegut found that humanists were strikingly secular in their enthusiasms and valued rationalism to a fairly well. Of his dog, however, Vonnegut said, he obviously worshipped not just me, but simply any person, as though he or she were the creator and manager of the universe, and thus was not really qualified to be a humanist. So sad. Obviously didn't meet my dog. So if my dog isn't qualified, though, who is? You might say that someone can be a humanist if they believe that each and every person is important, that all people should be treated fairly and kindly, that we should accept one another, that keep on learning together, that each person must be free to search for what is true and right in life, and that all persons should have a say about the things that concern them, that we should all work for a peaceful, fair, and free world, that we should care for our planet Earth, the home we share with all living things. And if all that sounds familiar, it should. Those statements are the all-ages version of the seven principles of Unitarian Universalism. Their roots are humanist. And that is not a surprise because humanism is a part of Unitarian Universalism. It's woven into the fabric, as it were. So it is worth taking a moment to appreciate those roots, to honor our humanist ancestors, which, remember, the Bible tells us is a good thing to do. And those roots were first planted, at least in part, in a set of three documents called, collectively, the Humanist Manifesto. And that brings me back to Reverend Schultz's book. The first manifesto, published in 1933, was a bold statement. It explicitly rejected God and any notion whatsoever of supernaturalism. It celebrated natural selection and the power of the scientific method. The manifesto centered humans for perhaps the first time as both part of the world and worthy of their place in that world. It championed human values and human questions and set as its goal the totality of human flourishing. It promoted socialism. It condemned capitalism. And while it rooted itself in the Western rationalist tradition, it also committed itself to pursuing the search for meaning in a communal and institutional context. That last bit is worth underlining because they were most emphatically not trying to kill off religion. Not at all. They well and truly believed that they were on a mission to save it. Save it from superstition, save it from irrelevance, save it from itself. And that was the humanist manifesto. It was a bold vision. And if you carry away nothing else, I want you to hold that boldness in your heart and mind. But it was not without its challenges. Reverend Schultz said that one of the original manifesto signers, Oliver Reiser, a professor of philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh, captured this, perhaps unintentionally, with the following parody of a traditional prayer. O thou cosmic movement, cosmic continuum, 
We petition thee to lend auditory discrimination to these our laryngeal contractions. May our cortical pathways always keep vigilance over our lower reflexes. May our endocrines not hypertrophy, nor our hormones become toxic. Increase our opsonic index, and though we walk through the valley of depressed metabolism, may we secrete no useless adrenaline. The real problem with the manifesto, Reverend Schultz said, is that there is, no, that there is a contradiction at the heart of the enterprise, one that's built into that first manifesto. The signers sought to establish a new religion while reclaiming that there will be no uniquely religious emotions or attitudes, and that man will learn to face the crises of life in terms of his knowledge of their naturalness and probability. Worried about death, about suffering, about finitude? Buck up, said the manifesto. Face them with reasonable and manly attitudes. I think you can see where secular humanism gets its warm and fuzzy bedside manner. <laughs> there have been many attempts to rescue religious humanism, and yes, I think religious humanism does need to be rescued. And yes, I think it can be rescued. There is inherent value in the humanist tradition and its aspirations and goals for beloved community. But there is more to humanism than just a cold rejection of God and God talk. Now, I'm not saying that humanism is our field of dreams. If we say it, they will come, specifically referring to the spiritual but not religious, or the nuns, those that identify as none of the above in terms of religious affiliation. Those that are allergic to institutions are still going to be allergic no matter what we say. But humanism is one of the explicitly named six sources of Unitarian Universalism. And it's the one that has become increasingly attenuated, distant, and in danger of being lost in a cloud of poorly managed vocabulary. Humanism at root celebrates human freedom. Human freedom. Freedom from superstition. Freedom from damnation. Freedom from fate. Human is the idea that humans are free, free to live, free to become, free to flourish. Humanism said that there was more to being human than doing a job, from being trapped in a cosmic drama. You are the author. Your life is your pen. No one can write your story for you but you. And yes, you can really screw that up. And yes, that is scary. But, but if we did it together, if we helped each other, if we pooled our strength, our might, our will, our passion, our resolve, our minds, our humor, and maybe especially our humor, well, now we can do and be the most amazing things. It's not about the discomfort of God talk. And the key isn't more rugged individualism. That's not humanism. That's go-it-aloneism. That's take-my-ball-and-go-home-ism. Humanism is about community. We don't have to think alike to love alike. 
But community is where meaning-making happens, that most human of human endeavors. In South Africa, this idea is called Ubuntu. I am because we are. I call it humanism, and that's why I'm a humanist. Almost 100 years ago, the first manifesto was a response to a need, the changing world, a world that was filled with hope for liberalism and the triumph of modern science. Over the years, the humanist vision has taken a beating. But for me personally, even with all its warts and foibles, it's home. The third manifesto ends with the responsibility for our lives and the kind of world in which we live is ours and ours alone. Writer Isaac Asimov, scientist Richard Dawkins, psychologist Albert Ellis, Arun Gandhi, the grandson of Mohandas Gandhi, the amazing Randy, filmmaker Oliver Stone, Pulitzer Prize winner Edward Wilson, all signed Manifesto Number 3. So did Kurt Vonnegut. I don't know about you, Vonnegut once said, but I practice a disorganized religion. I belong to an unholy disorder. We call ourselves Our Lady of Perpetual Astonishment. (laughs) Kurt Vonnegut died in 2007 as a result of injuries sustained in a fall. He was 84 years old. He is in heaven now. (laughs) May his irreverence and wit continue to warm your heart even as it continues to annoy your local school board. (laughs) Amen.